0: Jonah chapter 2 is where we're at, so let's go ahead and jump right in, okay? Here we go. Chapter 2, verse 1. Context, Jonah's in the belly of the fish. If you know the story, I'll brief recap, but he's in the belly of the fish, okay? And he is, this is his prayer. Here we go. From the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, and yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. You know, I'm Asian. I'm Korean, so I find that picture very funny, you know. It's like, see, we've wrapped it on my head, because if it was me, I'd start eating it, you know? That's what I would do. Um, Where am I? Okay. Verse 6, okay. To the roots of the mountains, I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling... To Worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with the song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and he vomited Jonah onto dry land. Brief recap. You know, there are people that say, is this really true? Is this really legend, myth? You know, and I, again, I said this when we started the, the, the sermon series. Jesus said that this was a historical actual event, you know, and I tend to go with the guy that like rose from the dead. Okay, so what he says, I believe. Okay, so he says that Jonah was an actual historical figure. So I tend to go with him. Okay, who is Jonah? Jonah was uh, a prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel right around 6th century BC. Very successful prophet. Bible study students, if you want to find out sort of a background context of Jonah, 2 Kings chapter 14, okay? Second Kings chapter 14. Jonah is a very successful prophet, and God comes to Jonah with that impossible mission. He says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the baddest, the most wicked, the most evil, and the most powerful nation in its capital city. And by the way, they are your enemies and the greatest threat to your security. And I want you to preach the gospel to them. And Jonah runs. And Jonah runs. And what we said from the very beginning is there's a a theological truth that kind of undergirds this whole book, and that is the essence of sin. What is the essence of sin? Essence of sin is that we run from God. Essence of sin is running from God, that we're all fugitives. And I said that there are many ways, two ways, primaries, that we run from God. One way that we run from God, you could relate. Many of you grew up in church and at some point, you said, church is irrelevant for me. It's boring. It's relevant. Or, or some of you, actually, the church is a church that really hurt you and hurt your family. And to leave the church was like leaving God. And for some of you, it's not outright rebellion, like I'm done with church and to see you, God. But there's certain areas in our lives where we say, God, I'm running from you, right? Certain areas in our lives where we say, dear Heavenly Father, no, in Jesus' name, Amen right? We basically go, that area you don't get to touch. That area is my control. Relationships, finances, marriage, career, whatever. That area God, you don't. And we run from God. We're fugitives. But the surprise of this story, though, is who, who, who's running? The surprise of the story is that the guy that's running is a prophet of God. He is moral. He's a good person. The person that's running in this story is not who you, who, not who you would think. An immoral, sexual, immoral person. It's, it's a It's a morally good person. It's the person who attends church every Sunday and leads Bible study. The person that's running from God in this story is not who you and I expect. But the runner in this story is someone from the outside, looks very much like God is at the center of their lives, but he couldn't be further from God. The surprise of the story is that Jonah is using his morality, his goodness to say to God, God, I'm in charge of my life. Jonah's using his goodness, his morality to say, I'm in church of my life. I know what I'm doing, and I need you to stay off. And you go, well, how do good moral people do that? I'll show you how we do that. We say stuff like this. God, I've been good. I've been obedient. Why aren't you answering my prayers? God, I follow the rules. I go to church. I stay out of the bad stuff. You know, I keep my nose clean. Why am I still single? God, I do all these things for you. I'm not that immoral, rebellious person. I'm a good person. Older brother, Luke 15. Why aren't you blessing me? And we run from God. And hearts couldn't be further from God, even more so than the one that's outright rebelling. The essence of sin is running from God to control our own lives. It's not so much a violation of a rule. We think breaking rules and commands. We think essence of sin. Essence of sin is Genesis 3. Adam and Eve say, God, we we know that you told us to live under your rule and reign to obey you and to follow you and to live our lives under your authority. But we're going to come out from that we're going to do our own thing. Essence of sin is saying, God, I'm better at navigating the situation than you essence of sin is, God, my wisdom, my knowledge, my intuition is way better than you. Now, we don't say this outrightly. We don't say to God, God, my, I'm more wise. We don't do that. But our response to life says that. Isn't that why you're anxious? Isn't that why you're angry? Isn't that why you're frustrated? Isn't that why you're bitter? Isn't that why you're saying, I want to chuck this whole thing? You're saying, God, you're not very good at running my life. Because this isn't how I would do it. Anybody running today? Anybody running today from God? I've been there. You have. Now, here's the thing what happens when we take control of our own lives? Listen, watch. When we take control of lives, we then wind up relinquishing our lives to someone or something else. We take control of our own lives. When we say, God, I know better than you. I'm more capable than you. I'm more competent than you to run my life. We wind up always, inevitably, giving up our lives, control of our lives to someone or something else. See, that's the irony. We run from God thinking we'll be free. And then we become enslaved to something else. We run to that relationship thinking, this is where I'm going to be free. And then that relationship winds up enslaving us. That career is where I'm going to find my life. And you work 90 hours and you can't get out. Whenever we gain control of our lives to flee from God, we wind up giving control of our lives to someone or something else every single time. So what does God do? Jonah. He sends a storm. Always. Always. He sends a storm. You know what storms are? Listen, storms are very simple. Storms are God's way of saying, you're not in control. Storms are God's way of saying, you think you are, but you're not in control of your life. You are incompetent to run your life. And until you realize that you are incompetent to run your own life, you are incompetent to run your own life. God sends storms to show us and say to us, in his love, wake up, wake up, wake up. I'm trying to wake you up from the illusion of thinking that you are in control of your life. I said this before, guys. It doesn't take much to remind us that we're not in control. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I show up on the California blue line thinking that the train will be there in five minutes. And then it takes like 20. Why? Because there's some guardrail change, you know, up like an Addison. I'm going, what? Just a simple flat tire is all we need for God to go. You can't even control a simple flat tire. How the heck are you going to control your life? (laughs) Storms are God's way of freeing us. Can I just, do you know what the greatest form of slavery is? It's the slavery of self-dependence it's self-reliance. The storm is sent to free Jonah from Jonah. God sends storms to free you from that circumstance. No, God sends storms to free you from you. From you thinking that you can do life. Think about this. If everything in your life, your career, job, finance, or to children if everything in your life depended on you, you are bound to your weaknesses and your strengths. That's why you're so tired. That's why you're so frustrated today. And God says, I'm going to free you from you. The illusion of thinking that you are in control of your life. And what do we do? We don't submit. We fight and we argue. And God goes, go on, go on. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. All right, we got we to gotta go on, okay? Did you all catch up to where we are so far? Okay, so that's chapter one, okay? So chapter two, where's Jonah? Well, here's what Jonah is. The, the, the text tells us the, the word down, okay? The word down is repeated several times in chapters one and two. Jonah has gone down. To Jopa to find a ship. He has gone down into the ship's hold and he lays down to sleep and now he's literally down at the bottom of the sea. And the truth is, running from God always leads to a downward spiral. I'm telling you, man, you run from God because you envision a certain life that you think you'll have, you never get it, do you? Honest with me, do you? You run from God thinking, that yeah, yeah. you never get the vivacious life that you think. No. You, you stop living when you run from God and then you just start existing. Just exist. Is there anything worse than just existing? Is, it, is there anything worse? And of course, our culture provides tons of things to make you feel like you're living even though you're just existing. Lots of people just existing because they run from God thinking, that's where life is. I don't know where life is. Come on, you and I both know. So Jonah is at the bottom, literally. He's running from God, and he's literally at the bottom. Every verse in this prayer, even chapter 2, makes reference to how deep he is in his problems. In other words, listen very carefully, guys. Jonah is very far from where he needs to be. He's at the bottom. He's deep in his problems. He is spiritually at the bottom. Anybody there today? I wonder if I'm talking to anybody here today or that's been there. You're deep in your problems, spiritually far from where you need to be. You're in despair. You've done things you regret. You think you're beyond hope and forgiveness and redemption. Your attitude actually today is not even God can forgive me and restore me. You're at the bottom. And then there are others of you who are afraid. Afraid of the future, afraid of tomorrow, afraid of what you've done, afraid that the hammer might drop because you're running. And then there some of you who are running and you just don't know what else to do. Maybe it takes too much energy to go, get back to God. I don't know if I can do it. I don't even know where to begin. So here's the question we're answering. How does Jonah go from state of despair, fear, and rebellion to as you read the end of the passage, he says, I will vow. I will fulfill my vow. How does he go from there to there? How do you go from there to there? Here's how. First thing. Jonah never stops praying. Jonah never stops praying. Look at verses 1 two, and, one and 2. He's in the, body, you know, in the belly of the fish. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord. He answered me from the depths of the grave. I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Jonah never stops praying. What do I mean? Jonah's like Job. Do you remember Job? Remember Job? Job? Here's what Job does, right? Job goes through hell, if you will, and he rants and he raves. He questions God's wisdom. He questions God's will for his life. He curses the day he was born. He does all of this. And at the end of the book, God says, he's a man of faith. At the end, God commends Job for his faith. Why? Jonah did everything wrong except one thing, that one thing, he did all of that in the presence of God. He rants, he raves, he questions God's wisdom and knowledge. He curses the day he was born, but he never stops praying. He does it in God's presence. And God commends him. There's some of you who are frustrated hurting, angry. My question is, are you talking to him? God says, I could handle your anger and questioning and cursing the day he was born, but are you doing it in his presence? You might be worrying in his general direction, but that's a totally different thing. You all know what I'm talking about? You know how we do that? We sort of worry and kind of, you know, he's kind of in the back of our, you know, frustrated, angry, you know. You never know, we talk to him. i tell you what, you guys. If you think that you'll gain nothing from approaching the throne of grace, I assure you, you'll gain nothing if you stay away. He never stops praying to God. Calling to him. Hmm. Can I just talked to uh, non Christians in here. By the way, you all know this is the reason why I ask you to bring your non Christian friends. Because if you're a non Christian, and are not a Christian, you, you say this, you know, I, I wish I can believe in God like that. You know, I wish I had that kind of faith, Peter, to cry out to God in my distress. But those kinds of comments fundamentally betray what faith really is. Many of us, Christians too, we think of faith like this we think of faith like an athletic gift or an ability to like sing. Oh man, I wish I could run like her true oh man I, I wish i had faith i wish i can sing like him we think of faith like as a talent but that's not what faith is you know what faith is we show we see in text the faith is joe twice in this text Job says Job says uh jonah says i call to him i call to him you know what faith is first step of faith no faith first step of faith you yell but you yell to god let me break this down for you okay you yell but you yell to god what do i mean The first step of faith is not to say, gee, I wonder if there is a God. No, the first step of faith is to say, God, are you there? If you are, show me. If you are, show me your glory. First step of faith is a step. It is, you have to do something. It is to seek him. That's what the Bible says. Seek him, reach out to him. It is to say, God, are you there? If you are, show me. Show me your glory. I just said this and shared this actually two weeks ago with a young man that was sitting up here. Now, some of you that are, Intuitive, and you're listening, you're paying attention, you're going, Peter, that doesn't make any sense. Because it sounds like you need faith to have faith. Are you tracking so far, by the way? Okay. You need to have faith to have faith. You know what I mean? Like it takes faith to be able to believe that there is a God. No, I love what one pastor said. To seek God in faith, to seek God in faith means to doubt your doubts. To seek God in faith means to doubt your doubts. It's to seek God, to reach out to him. It's to doubt your doubts. Let me break it down for you. you got to recognize what the Bible says in Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 says that God is creator and we are his creatures. And because of that, every single human being, creature, is born with this inherent knowledge that there is a God and that we owe him our allegiance and that we need to wrap our lives around him. But here's the thing. The human heart also knows that if you acknowledge that there is a God, it has ramifications on your life and how you live that you submit and surrender yourself to him. So the human heart will go to great lengths to not believe that there is a God because believing that there is a God means that you acknowledge that you have to live your life a certain way. So the fact that you don't believe that there is a God, you shouldn't doubt. Doubt your doubts enough to believe. Doubting your doubts enough to believe. Because here's the thing. If you're a doubter skeptic, is it fair that you doubt and are skeptical and cynical about everything except your doubts, your cynicism, and your skepticism? (laughs) Is it fair to say, my doubts, my skepticism, my cynicism, nobody can question those things. I'll question everything else, including if there's a God. But you can't. Is it fair for you to say, everything is in play except, my doubts, my cynicism, my skepticism. I'm just asking. I'm just asking. Doubt your doubts enough to seek him. The Bible says, seek him while he may be found. Draw near to him while he is near. You'll seek him and find him. If you'll seek him with all your heart, Jeremiah. All those passages literally are saying, if you're not a Christian and you don't know what faith is and you're going, I don't know if I have enough faith. God says the first step is a step. is simply to doubt your doubts and say, God, are you there? That's it. He never stops praying. Secondly, the amazing thing is this. God actually listens to the prayer of the fugitive. Did you notice? God listens to the prayer of the fugitive. God listens to the prayer of Jonah. In my distress that I brought upon myself, I can't blame nobody else. I bought the ticket to Joba. I got on the ship. Nobody else forced me to do it. In my distress that I brought upon myself, when I cried out, he what? He heard me. When I left the path of destruction because of selfish, ill timed decisions I made, nobody else, I made. When I decided I'm done, God, with my life, I want to turn to you. And I cried out to God, God heard. Now, I don't know what you think of God, but I look at that and I'm amazed because honestly, I go, Why would God listen? Why would God listen? Why would God listen to a fugitive who says to God, God, nope, nope, like we talk to a dog. God, stay, nope, stay. I want you in the rear of your mirror. Stay. I going to do my thing. And yet, when we say, God, I, I need you, he He hears. He hears. When we say to God, God, I'm done kind of living my, you know, I, I got this, okay? I got this. You're, you do your thing. I got this. I'm in charge because of you're of my life. My wisdom, my knowledge, clearly better than yours. So I'm going to, when we do that, and we find ourselves in a mess, we turn to God and say, God, help. God, what? Listen. I used to do a lot of premarital counseling. I don't do anymore because our church is too big. He did a lot of premarital counseling, and, and people are shocked by this. But you know, I've actually sat in front of couples who are engaged and said to them, I don't think you two should get married. <laughs> what? No, I don't think you two should get married. I think your marriage will end in disaster. I say this in love. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? What do you think happens? What do you think happens? Wait, oh, I mean, even more than that. They don't go, thank you, Pastor Peter, for your wisdom and for your love. No, no, no. They get angry at me, you know? They, they go, how what do you mean? We don't do you, know, do you know how long we've been together? Do you know how to forget you? I'm, oh okay. All right. So they go off, right? What do they do? They contact some pastor who they'll pay like hundred bucks, right? Who will officiate and marry them, right? But well, whatever what happens, their marriage Starts getting in trouble. Starts getting rocky. And you know what happens? Who do they call? They don't call Pastor Bob. They'd marry them for a hundred bucks. I tell you that. You know what they call? They call me. And they go, can we meet for counseling? And you know what I want to say to them? No. No. I told you not to get married. I told you this was going to happen. So, no, take your hundred bucks, go to Pastor Bob that married you because he was foolish. Don't come. Here's the good news God is not like me, okay? That's the principle. That's all that is. That's all that is. God listens to the prayer, okay? In all seriousness, in all seriousness, in all seriousness. Isn't this the reason why some of you guys sitting here, haven't gone to God. You haven't gone to God because you're literally sitting there going, I made a mess of my life. Why would he listen? I cursed God. I did my own thing. I'm not the path of destruction. I was clearly rebellious. How, why would God care? And yet the Bible from Genesis to Revelation says this, God says, when they cried out in their distress, he what? He listened. Oh. This is good news for those of you that have a tendency to run. It is great news for any one of us that has a tendency to run. It is good news for some of you particularly today because you walked in today and you're going, I don't even know how to take the first step, man. I am so deep in a hole. I don't even know where to begin. I'll tell you where you can begin. You ready? All you need to do is say, God, help. That's it. That's it. I don't need to go. You know, I'm going to God tomorrow. Get up in the morning. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to fast. God, I need to find the right words. Oh, please, please, please help. Help God. God listens to the prayer of the fugitive keep going, Jonah chapter verse 3, and then he says, uh, says something says, very interesting, he says, you hurled me into the deep, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me, and all your waves, you notice something interesting, he doesn't say, and the sailors, Jonah, you got it wrong, the sailors threw you in, the sa- no, he says, no, 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 but, but he says, God, you, you hurled me into the deep, into the very heart, and all your waves, that's no, the ocean, man, it's, no, your waves, and breakers swept over me, here's the sermon point, and it's kind of tough, it's going it's to be like, like, like good medicine. Here's the principle. The circumstances of your life are being used by God. God, God. It's not circumstances alone, chance. God, not to pay you back, but to bring you back. You may not know it, you guys. I don't know where you are, but if you're running from God, what's happening in your life. The storm, listen, this is the thing. This is the thing that Satan wants you to believe. We think when the storms come that it's retribution, right? That is punitive from God. God is punishing us. I'm telling you right now, I'm telling you right now. This thing right here, this thing right here. The reason why this is up here is because if you ever go, God, you're punishing me. He's not punishing you. Because all your punishment fell on Jesus. I know deep in your heart, I know deep in your heart, you go, God, this is retribution, right? you pay me back. All the payment for you and me. All the payment for sinful humanity so that we would never be under receiving. Yet God went on the cross and took your payment. This right here is up here to remind us that you don't have a God of vengeance that wants to punish. He punished his son on your behalf. It's not retribution. It's not punitive. You know what it is? It's discipline of a loving heavenly father. When the storms come, we immediately go, God, you're punishing me. First and foremost, the cross, the cross, the cross. He's not punishing me. You know what God is doing? Because he loves you so much. What he will do sometimes is let the full force of the consequences of your decisions take its course. And sometimes, and oftentimes, there's pain. There's suffering. There are scars. Parents, can I just talk to you for a second? Because this really hits me home now, you know. Parker isn't quite old enough yet, but parents, when we see our children in rebellion, right, and going through stuff, and clearly God is orchestrating circumstances, You know what we want to do? We want to jump out of this ship and go, no! You know, we want to rescue them. When we do, we prolong their pain. We prolong our pain. And we miss out on what God might want to do. It is natural parental instinct to go, I want to jump in and rescue my child. No, the best thing to do is to say, God, you do your thing. After all, he is much better at parenting than we are. His discipline is perfect. By the way, I just a side note. Do you know that the word discipline in Greek comes from the original word from which we get the word pediatrician? Hebrew chapter 11, when God disciplines it, same word, pediatrician. You put them two or two together. When God disciplines his child... As a pediatrician, who is has the best interest of the child holistically. is caring. Storms, circumstances in your life being used by God not to pay you back, but to bring you back. Jonah chapter 2, verse 4. I said, I've been banished from your side, and i look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head to the roots of the mountains. By the way, I'm sorry. I need to back up. Woo, 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 woo. Back up, back up, back up. I just ask, how many of you guys here could say, honestly, honestly, Peter, God actually used his heavenly father discipline by letting the circumstances and consequences of my actions bring me back to him? How many of you guys, clap, clap if that's true for you. I'm telling you. So, so this, isn't, this isn't anything new, is it? Or, or unique or innovative. God does this, doesn't he? But the thing is, we're like Israel, short-term memory, Right? It's like we, we, we look in hindsight and go, yeah, oh, yeah, that was good for me. But then next time, why are you? Yeah. So where was I? Verse 4 of a 5. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To which I want to go, Joa. Put it on some, I'm sorry, I make all these inside Korean jokes and uh, other people that are not Korean don't understand it, so let's just go on, okay? Verse six, to the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath me barred me in forever, but you brought my life from the pit, oh Lord, my God. Okay, this is a huge pivot, okay? Because this week and next week, we're going to be talking about grace. Because that's the major, second major theme in the book of Jonah is grace. Now, we sing about it, we talk about it, but we have no idea what grace is. We don't. We don't. I'm telling you. We're going to break it down. We're going to break it down so that if I do my job, you'll never see, hear the word grace and be same again. You'll, you'll think, whoa. It, totally different paradigm. Okay? Jonah is in total darkness about God's grace. Remember, we've been talking about his fears, his racial prejudice, his rebellion is because, because he doesn't understand the nature of God's grace. But yet God has sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach grace. But he doesn't understand what grace is. So God is to teach him what grace is. Okay? That's where we are. Now, the thing is, does Jonah know something about grace? Of course he does. He's just like you and me. Chapter 4, Jonah says, God, I knew you were a gracious God. In his defiance, I knew you were a great, So he knows something about God's grace. But Jonah clearly didn't understand what God's grace was. Just like you and me. We have an idea and understanding of what grace is, sort of, kind of. But we don't truly understand it. Let me say this. Do you know that all of our problems, all of our problems... May have secondary causes on why we have problems. But the primary reason is we don't understand the measure of the depth of God's grace. We don't. We don't. We think we do, but we don't. And that is a thing that ails us over and over and over and over again. We don't understand sin. We don't understand grace. grace. What is grace? What is grace? I'm going to break it down to you this way. First of all, the importance of grace. I'll tell you why grace is so important. Look at what Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 verse 6. This is so, so, so important. Listen, listen, here's what Colossians 1 says. All over the world, this gospel, gospel is bearing fruit and growing. So here's what Paul Paul is using, an organic metaphor, okay? Agricultural metaphor for spiritual transformation. And he says, you began to experience transformation and change. When? When? This is what he says. Just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. And we stop right there. We read Colossians 1 and 6 that way. We think that the, that the day that we began to experience life transformation and change is the day that we heard about grace. But the verse doesn't stop there. It goes on. Look at what it says. Justice has been doing among you since the day you heard it and you understood God's grace in all its truth. Now, guys, this is so amazing to me. Because what Paul is saying here is that the day that we became, listen, changed, transformed, hes literally it's a synonym for being born again. The day that we began to experience transformation and change, we were born again, made new. It's not the day that we said, I believe in grace. Yeah, I hear it. It's the day that we understood it. He's literally saying, unless you understand God's grace, you haven't experienced transformation. He's literally saying, unless you understand God's grace, you haven't begun the Christian life. Very different from what we heard. Very different from what we grew up with. Paul is literally saying that the day that, and and the word understand literally means it dawns on you. Grace dawns on you. It electrifies you. It melts your heart. It begins to do something in your heart, and it begins to transform and change. That's what it means to understand God's grace. He said the day that you understood God's grace is the day that you were born again. Now my question is this, flat out. Have you understood God's grace? Because for many of us, when I say grace, it's like a very foggy sort of, there's favor, there's undeserved something, something. It's her name. <laughs> what grace? What, what, what is grace? Here's the definition. The word grace in Hebrew, if you're taking notes, is a Hebrew word, "hen." Chen, from the root word, chanan. And here's what word "hen" in Hebrew literally means. It literally means favor, mercy, kindness, graciousness grace it's not just doing action hey byron will you do me a favor yeah i'll do you a favor action favor that's not what grace means grace literally means to let someone in who has no business being let in four examples in the old testament one genesis 32 jacob is coming back from dissing his brother and he wants to be back in the family. And he says to Esau, 32, Esau, if I may find chen or chana, favor in your eyes. He's literally saying, Jacob, like I got no business being brought back into the family. And you have no obligation to let me back in. But will you? You tracking? It's so a definition of grace. I think this is up there. It's favor. Granted, to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver grace being let in to a place that you don't deserve to be let into by a person who is not obligated at all to let you in break it down grace granted to an undeserved person first part excuse me a theologian used the word cosmic hospitality being let in what do i mean when you let somebody into your house if you're me, you do this. <laughs> hey, Peter. Hey, come on in. After they come on in, they're holding in their you know coat, going, what do I? I don't know. Put it anywhere. Where do I sit? I don't know. If I, that's me, okay. But a hospitable person does. Come on in. Let me get your coat. All right. Hey, go have a seat over there. You thirsty? you thirsty. I'll get something. There. Are you hungry? Hungry? Let me get you something. There. Is it hot in here? Let me open the window. Are you cold in? Here? Let me put on the heat. Letting somebody in is you let them in, all the way in, to your heart, to your home, to your dwelling, to yourself. Cosmic hospitality says, God, this is what God does, grace. He says, come on in. All the way. Make yourself come come all the way in, to my dwelling, to my home, to my personal self. And there he meets our needs. He answers our prayers. He hears our cries being let in so the question is asked well, why is that a big deal why does it hit us so hard like God does that for us because the reality is every single one of us wants to be let in we all want in we all want in C.S. Lewis had this wonderful talk called The Inner Ring on one of the radio shows okay you can google it read the whole thing it's wonderful okay the inner ring. And here's what he says. He says every single one of us, let me break it down. Every single one of us has a group of inner ring that we all want to desperately be a part of. How many of y'all grow? Junior, high, high school? Remember those groups, clicks, right? The preps, the jocks, right? The skaters, the punks, the, and if you go, I want any one of those. What was that? You, You were a nerd, okay? That was a group that you were a part of, okay? <laughs> you were a nerd, okay? We had all these groups. I'm sorry if I offended you. But I must say, I was one of those, okay? I was, one, I was a nerd, okay? So that's what I was. So was, past tense, okay? I was, all right. <laughs> Look at me like, you still on, man. Okay, so I was a nerd, okay? So we all went, and do you remember how hard we worked to, to do you remember that? Anybody? Is, am I just the one, one, you know? All right, so here's, here's, the, here's the extent to where I went, right? I, I moved from the city to the suburbs to go to high school. And one of the first things I did when I moved to the suburbs was I got on the baseball team. Because I thought that was, you know. And so here's what I did to fit in. Remember, remember these things called chew? Remember tobacco? This was like in the 80s. Guys would take a, some tobacco and they would stick it in and their guns, right? And they would and then they'd spit on it and stuff like that. Because that was cool. You know, it got a little bit of a buzz. I so desperately wanted to fit in. I said, give me some of that chew. Almost about vomited. You know what I mean? On everybody. All right, here's the thing. Does that end in high school? Of course not. Of course not. Y'all have inner rings today. I have inner ring today. You're a musician, example. The inner ring is the music industry, it's the producers, it's the people that could make connections for you. You're a lawyer, it's that firm, it's the partners. Every single one of us, still to this day, we have this inner ring. It's like junior high all over again. We have this inner ring that we desperately want to be a part of. We think, oh, if I could just be a part of that, if I just be received, if I could just be let into that group, my life will have meaning. My life will have significance just that inner ring. Now, the thing is, what is that? What is it all about? Why do we want to be let in? Because we have this thing in us that feels like we're out. It's Genesis 2 and 3. We're out we feel out we desperately feel out and we go i, I want to be let in and god the gospel comes and says you know what that thing is you know why you so desperately want to be let in because because wait, for those of you the gospel comes and says this for those of you that desperately want to be a part of that group and are completely distraught and destroyed because you're not a part of that group or for those of you who finally got into the group and yet find yourself empty god says what is that here's what that is you're built so that there's only one, the inner ring that you need to be led into. And The Lord creator is his name. And here's the thing, despite your fears that says, but I'm not good looking enough. I'm not strong enough. I'm not athletic enough. I'm not gifted enough to be let in. And God says, you're right. You can't get in on your own. But contrary to our beliefs, God says, but you can be in, welcomed in, all the way in. Not because of your payment, but because of his payment. Not because of what's on your heart, but because of what's on his heart. You know what grace is? Is to be led in to a place you have no business being led into by someone who has no obligation to let you in. Isn't that good news? So do you know You know what grace is? Grace is that. It's God saying, come on in, all the way in. Yes, the place, the only place that will truly meet the deepest needs of your heart. The only inner ring that matters. And the only one who matters has let you in freely out of his grace. The second part of the definition, though, we got to finish, is that that person is unobligated to let you in unobligate to let you in. Three quick examples to show you clarity of this. First example, you're a parent of an ungrateful child and a rebellious child. He does his own thing, gets himself in big trouble. What do you do? You help him. Why? Because if you don't, you go to jail. You're obligated as a parent. You don't say, you made the rest of it. down. You, as a parent, have a moral and legal obligation to help that rebellious child. That's not grace. Second example, you're a community group leader. You're a community group leader who steps down from leading. And you take him out, buy him a nice dinner, write some notes and say thank you. Why? Because you're obligated? No. When you join the community group, we don't have a policy in our church that says, you shall take your leader out to dinner. And they said, no, you don't do that. But after all they've done for you, you're grateful, you're thankful. Is it grace? Sort of, kind of. Third example. You live in an apartment, very close quarters. Your neighbor is a jerk. They turn on their music really loud. You say, can you turn the music down? He turns it louder. You turn on your music, he calls the police on you. He gets really sick. What do you do? You make chicken soup for him. You check his mail. You check on him every hour and say, hey, man, you okay? Okay. You're not obligated to do it. Matter of fact, that's the furthest thing from obligation, morally or any otherwise. But you do it. Why? Here's the thing. Here's the thing about grace. What came before and what came after, there is no correlation. And here's the truth about what grace is. And it's found right here in Jonah chapter 2, verse 4, in two words. And yet. Say it with me. And and yet, verse 4, listen to what he says. This is so powerful. I have been banished from your sight because of what I did. And the Bible says, and yet. Verse 6, to the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, you know what grace is? Greece shouts out, and yet. I was in this condition. Say it with me. And yet. Is it resonating yet? yet. You see what grace is? He says there is no connection logically at all between what came before and what came after. I was in this condition and yet. So here's what the gospel says. I was running and yet you came after me. I was unworthy of your forgiveness. Say with me. And yet you forgave me. I was your enemy, and yet you died for me. I rejected you, and yet you received me. I deserve the wrath of God, and yet you took it on my behalf. I should have been dead, and yet you kept me alive. And yet. Whew. You go home and they talk to your friends. What did your pastor talk about? He talked about, and yet... Grace Is that good news? Oh, church. You know, if there's the end yet in your life, you can do anything. I'm telling you. Your life. You can, pull the, you, you can break the pole of gravity if you understand grace. You don't have to be afraid of what you see in the mirror. And I'll tell you why that's so important. Do you know why many of us Christians don't experience life transformation? Because we're afraid to be real, raw, honest with ourselves. We're afraid to look at ourselves in the mirror and go, that's who I am. You know why we do that? Because everybody in this room, we live our lives based on performance. Our entire identity is based on performance. So when we fail, there goes our identity. There goes our significance. There goes everything that we know to be. Every single one of us. But grace comes and says, your identity is not based on performance. It is based on grace. Undeserved favor. So you know what you know what happens to Christians that get this? They look at all the ugliness, the junk, the mess in their lives, and they look in the mirror. You know why? Not because they're, you know, just a tough guy. They look in their mirror because they go, There's an end yet in my life. That's what I look like. And yet, he loves me. That's what I did. And You know, for those of you that, that don't do this, Christians that don't understand grace, the reason why you don't experience life transformation is because you are afraid of being that real and honest with yourself. Why? You don't understand the end yet. It's because or therefore. I'm like this. Therefore, how could he possibly accept me? I'm like that. Therefore, why would he? And yet. Pulse of, pull of gravity. How many of you, this is real and working in your life? How many of you understand grace this way? Saying there is an end yet. I am a sinner, and yet He died for me. I fail Him again and again and again. Say with me, and yet He'll never give up on me. Your identity and your Christian life is religion, self-effort, performance. You'll never know grace. This is the reason why the Bible says grace, beginning of transformation. So how do you receive grace? I got I to wrap up here. How do you receive grace? This weekend, next week, we're going to dig even deeper into what this means, grace. How do you receive grace? You see, not only your unworthiness to receive it, two things, but the height that went, God went to give it. How do you receive it? How do you receive it? That's what Paul says. You need to understand grace and all is truth. You need to understand, and there's two things, understanding grace and all its truth. There's two components. You need to understand the depth of your need and the height of God's love. Did you see that? The depth of your need and the height. That means three groups of people. Everybody in the world. Don't look at your neighbors. Look at your navel. Look at your navel. Just look at yourself. There's first group. The reason why you won't experience God's grace is because you have too low of you. You have too low of you of sin. You have too low of you of sin. In other words, there's some of you who will totally miss grace because you're sitting there going, I'm not that bad. I'm a pretty good person, you know. On a scale of Mother Teresa, not her, but Rob Blagojevich, definitely better than him, you know. So I'm kind of like in the middle. I'm not a corrupt politician. I don't lie, I don't cheat, I don't steal. Both. And you go, I'm not that bad. Basically what you're saying is I don't have anything coming to me from God that I don't deserve. You don't see your need. Totally miss grace. You don't see the depth of your need. Totally miss grace. Totally misgrace. Second, there's a group of you that'll miss grace because you have too low a view of God's mercy. You don't think God's mercy is powerful enough to deal with the mess that you're in. And these, you know, can I just tell you something? Carlson, you can come on up. Can I just tell you something? Everybody look up here. Everybody, please look up here. Because this was me. This was me. And if this was me, I imagine maybe it will be for some of you. The people that have struggled with, you know, with God, to a low view of God's mercy, you know what their attitude is? Their attitude is, I'm better than this. Other people may struggle with this sin, but I shouldn't struggle with this sin. They they might be, you know, but, but me. So in other words, we have to love God's mercy view of mercy because it's a religion of self effort Like I, I shouldn't need God's grace. They shouldn't, I shouldn't need. And so what do you do? You literally are saying, God, not even you can forgive me. That's idolatry. Because the Bible says, I don't care who you are and what you've done, but can you even forgive this? And amazingly, these two people are in the same boat. For a very different reasons, but same boat. They totally miss grace. Because they fail to see the depth of their sin. Or fail to see the height of God's commitment and love. And then there are those people. Listen, listen. Who see with both eyes. So there's depth perception. See with one eye. I can't. No, there's no depth perception. You see with both eyes. Now what do I mean? There are people who see the depth of their sin. And they look at it and go, God, ah, even in my morality, even in my goodness, oh, I'm doing it for all the wrong reasons. I do it to look good, even in my righteousness. Ah, It's tainted with sin. I'm running, God, in my morality. Oh, that's... They see the depth of their sin. But they don't send there and go, I shouldn't need God's grace. They go say, and look what you did for me. Look at your commitment to me. Look at the height that you went to forgive me. And they see both the depth of their sin and the height of God's grace. And when those two things come together, it's like a chemical reaction, people. It's like, oh, it's called theological word, regeneration. (laughs) Rebirth. In other words... that you understood God's grace and all its truth. Life change. Grace. Grace. Favor given to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Is that beautiful? Oh. It's like a mansion with hundred different rooms. And it takes our lifetime to, you know, get a hold of it. And, and we'll talk about next week. Understanding this is a lifelong journey, isn't it? It is. But the beginning point. See, this is why I, I share the gospel with you guys, the definition of the gospel over and over again. Maybe today it will make sense. Watch. Watch this. Watch this. Too too tight. Although I am more defective and sinful than I dared believe. And yet. I am more loved and more accepted than I dared to hope at the same time because of Jesus. Hmm. If there's anybody in here, now I'm not going to do the whole come front we're going to do that in the next two, three, four, five weeks because I need you to understand and hear the full story of the gospel. And I don't want this to be an emotional response. But let me just, give me like one more minute. For those of you that are sitting here saying, Peter, you don't know what I've done. You don't know where I've been. You know, here's the good news. <laughs> Our sin reaches far, but God's grace reaches further. Our capacity to sin is great, but God's capacity to forgive is greater. No matter where you are today, no matter where you have been, no matter where you might be in the future, just as God pursues the Jonas of this world, God pursues you. But you don't know where I've been. I don't know, but God does. And this God says, there is grace waiting for anyone who simply can say, Grace. grace. Your grace is amazing, Heavenly Father. We sing that song. We utter those words. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Amazing. Zing grace, how sweet the sound! watch this—it's smart. That saved a wretch like me. How I want to end this service, okay? If you have a hard time understanding this and grasping it, you know, I'm saying like from here to here, where it has, it has electrified you. I want to pray for you this morning as I pray for myself, because this is the work that the Holy Spirit does as we get hold of this truth. Stand up from where you are and join me as I pray. Amazing, amazing, how sweet the sound that say. God, help us to see. Help us to see. Because we are hard of seeing. Favor granted to an undeserving person by an unobligated giver. Grace. Your grace simply is amazing. And God, as your children and as your people walk out these doors, may the truth, may this incredible lifelong getting it truth melt our hearts, electrify our hearts, begin to work in our hearts in such a way That our lives will defeat the pull of gravity, God. No matter what happens. No matter what we see. No matter who we are. Empowered by this unbelievable truth. May we live our lives in radical obedience. For the sake of your kingdom. For the sake of your mission. For the sake of our world. the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said... All God's people said, have a great week. We'll see you next week.